after Easter than you did on Easter. So tell your neighbor that's sitting beside you, I'm so impressed. Share with me your beauty secrets. But I hope that you had a great week and that you were able to get some rest. I know holidays like Easter can be pretty, pretty exhausting. I felt like I was playing catch up all week. But here we are today. Spring's here. So many good things are happening. And we're starting a brand new series today called The Real Jesus. And we're going to kick it off in John chapter number 8. John chapter number 8. So I would encourage you, if you have a Bible, go with me there. If you have a smartphone or a tablet, our worship guide is accessible through the Waterview app. And go ahead and open that. You can follow along with us today. But John chapter number 8 is where we're going to begin. John 8, I've, I've been thinking all this week just about the great things that God did here last weekend. So many hearts touched, so many lives changed, so many people surrendered their lives either for the first time or for the first time in a long time and made fresh starts. And that's honestly why we exist. That's what we're all about. And it thrills us to be able to play a part in that. And so if you happen to be a part of that number, we want to welcome you back. And you're doing the right thing by being here again. Success begins on Sunday. And you're not meant to do this faith adventure alone. You're not meant to do it by yourself. And there's going to be a church that's going to help you every step of the way. John chapter number 8 and verse number 2, it says, At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. Some translations read, they brought in a woman caught in the act of adultery, inferring that perhaps she was snatched out of the bed and brought in, brought either completely nude or partially clothed into this arena of people, into this crowd of people, and they made her stand before the group. And then they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. And he's left there with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman? Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. And from this shocking, amazing, 
hard to wrap our brain around passage. I want to kick off our series, The Real Jesus, by talking with you for just a few moments today on the subject, Some Things You May Not Know About Jesus. Some Things You May Not Know About Jesus. Now, I understand that perhaps you may consider my my title today an impossibility, and then there might be others of you today that might view it as a challenge, those of you that lean a little more competitive, because after all, who doesn't know everything there is to know about Jesus? I mean, you might be thinking that in this moment, you know just about everything that there is to know about our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. After all, he is certainly the most prominent faith founder and spiritual leader in the United States of America and globally, arguably the same. Even in the 21st century, as we have arrived to where really we are a post-Christian society, and as we continue on that trend towards even greater secularism, Jesus is still preached about. He is still talked about. He is still debated. He is still discussed, denied, and even dissed continually. You want to you have fun someday on your social media feed, just post something about your love and affection for Jesus. It will generate a variety of responses. It can be extremely polarizing. Jesus, after all, has been Time's man of the year. Jesus was even dubbed by Time as the man of the millennium. And even beyond that, Jesus, by Time magazine, was declared to be the man of all millenniums. And depending on our backgrounds and depending on where we're from, we know different aspects about him or we know just different things about him that resonate with us. And so I am supposing today that the Jesus that we know is the Jesus that we've been exposed to. However, I believe, and that's what really this whole series is going to be about, I believe that the most life-transforming moment is when you come to know what I call the real Jesus. And we see the real Jesus here in John chapter number 8. I mean, there are snapshots of who he is, his life throughout all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, All of them reveal different aspects to who he is and and how he thinks and perhaps the mission that he's on. But I don't believe that there is another moment, another illustration that really fully encapsulates all that he really is. Why he's here, his heart his methodology, all of it we find contained here again in this somewhat fascinating 
narrative in John chapter number 8. And here we see that a woman is caught in a very shameful moment. Prior to this, prior to Jesus being rudely interrupted by the religious people, it was a very peaceful, tranquil, and serene moment. Jesus had gathered people around, and he's spending time with them, and he's teaching them, and it is interrupted rudely and abruptly by people with an agenda. And these religious people, they burst in to the middle of what God is doing and how he is moving, and they throw this woman down in the middle of the crowd who has been caught committing adultery. Again, caught in the act. And there has been various scholarly surmising concerning how she looked and what was happening in that moment how they even came to catch her in the act. I mean, after all, were they peering in the window? Were they listening outside of the door? Were they waiting their turn? We don't know exactly. And again, there have been many scholars that have written about this very moment, but she is caught committing adultery. And unfortunately for her, she could not have been caught by a worse group of people. Biblically speaking, historically and contextually speaking, if you're going to do wrong and then you're going to get caught, this bunch of people is the last group that you want finding you in a sinful and regretful moment. She ends up in the hands of religious, critical, and judgmental people. And when they seize her, when they seize her in this moment, it's very evident by their actions that their motive is not to love her. Their motive is not to forgive her. Their motive is not to cover her, to help her, to restore her to uplift her, or to equip her. It's just the opposite. They want to expose her. They want to talk about her with others. They want to build a case against her. They want to judge her. They want to accuse her. They want to condemn her. They want to publicly shame her. And then even worse, and I think this probably is what bothers me the most, they even try to use the words of the scripture to destroy her. And it is for this reason that I believe that we should stop referring to this narrative and this moment in John chapter 8. We should stop calling it the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. Because if you get around people that know the Bible at all or have any kind of church background, when they reference John chapter number 8, they will reference the story in this manner, the woman caught in the act of adultery. But I think, based on what we've just been discussing, that we should 
try to reframe and rename how we identify what's happening here. And instead of calling it the story of the woman caught in adultery, we should start calling it the story of the religious who are caught in hypocrisy. And for a few reasons. Number one, because the man who was committing the act with her, because I remember way back when my parents had the conversation with me about the birds and the bees, that it required two people. And in fact, Leviticus, Moses' law that they cite in an attempt to twist God's word, Levitical law said that if there was an act of adultery, that both parties would actually have to be brought and to answer for what they had done. But because the man committing the act with her was just as guilty, but she was the only one condemned, we could call it the story of the religious caught in hypocrisy. Furthermore, the religious and judgmental people who brought her, well, they were just as guilty of sin. And we know this later because Jesus says, let the one that's without sin cast the first stone, and there was not a stone thrown, which means that they recognized their own inadequacies and their own sin. The religious who bring this sinful woman to account for what she has done were just as guilty of sin, albeit a different sin, yet felt emboldened and entitled to bring her to receive punishment. And I think that's why C.S. Lewis once famously said, those who do not think about their own sins make up for it by thinking incessantly about the sins of others. And they bring her before Jesus, and they cast her before him. And because my mind is wired to be more verbal and less mathematical, I want to transport myself to the middle of the narrative and the chaotic scene that's there. The noise of the crowd is deafening and there's dust that's been kicked up by the activity of all of the people and here Jesus is somewhat caught off guard and there's red-faced, angry, screaming religious people and they've got this woman partially clothed there interrupting what Jesus was doing and there she is and my heart goes out to her. Here she is, she's trembling She's bruised, she's dirty, she's frightened, she's embarrassed. She's disoriented. No doubt fight or flight has kicked into her subconscious. Adrenaline is racing through her body. She's frantically looking around, looking for an exit route, and there's none to be found. And there she sits, A broken, broken woman. The only difference between her and the rest of the people is that the sin that she's committed is now on display for everyone to know about it. And furthermore, the crowd that's gathered around her carries heavy rocks in their hand wanting to stone her. 
They, they have adopted a mob mentality where now they are wanting a pound of flesh. They're wanting to take her life. And then Jesus, Jesus the master, Jesus the miracle worker, Jesus the God-man, Jesus the one whom they're ultimately trying to get at and they're ultimately trying to destroy, Jesus makes a profound statement that stops the bloodthirsty mob in their tracks. And he says, let the person that is without sin go ahead, cast the first stone. But then even more remarkable, he does something two separate times in the narrative that has provoked questions for centuries. Imagine all this is happening And the Bible says that Jesus just casually, calmly bends down. And he just takes his finger, the finger of God, the very finger that carves the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic Law in stone hundreds of years prior. The finger of God this time is not etching eternal commandments in stone. He's doodling in the dust. And he starts writing. And if you'll read this narrative over and over again, from top to bottom, left to right, inside and out, you're never going to read what it is that he wrote. And I think that is the most troubling and frustrating. (laughs) Come on, you can't do that to me. Like, this isn't a series. There isn't episode two next week. There's no need for cliffhangers. Tell us what in the world He wrote, everyone then and now and all the way in between, everyone wants to know what he writes and they want to know why he writes it. And you know, when you start doing Bible nerd type stuff and studying what scholars say about it and think about it, you'll find all kinds of various opinions. And some of them are amusing to me. One of of them is that Jesus is bending down just literally doodling in the dust because he's trying to ignore the insanity and the accusation of all of these critical judgmental people as if I have more important things to do than to pay this any mind and he's just he's just writing there and the second is probably my favorite the second theory and the one that I'll kind of lean into here today because The second time he writes, that's when everybody drops their stones and hightails it out of there. I think that in that moment, Jesus started writing the secret sin of everyone that had a rock in their hands. And perhaps the name of all of the very men that held rocks who had been with that woman or the names of their mistresses or the names and the things that each and every one of them had done, he's starting to uncover all of their secret sins and they're like, wow, wow, okay, well, let's back off here just a bit, let's drop the rocks and let's just kind of mosey on out of here like... uh, Nothing's going on. The bottom line remains that we don't know what he writes. We don't know why he writes it. However, I think that we learn some amazing things about the real Jesus. 
Remember, when they all arrive, he's there actively doing the work of God. The reason that he's there, he's bringing disciples around him. He's loving them. He's teaching them. He's doing the work of God until it was interrupted. And now it's interrupted by someone that the majority of society thinks is not worthy of honor or respect, not worthy of forgiveness. And here we have Jesus, God in flesh, the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, who is busy doing the work of God. The Bible says that when he sees her, he stoops down. He stoops down. That, that's something today that you may not know about Jesus is that he is for you and for the person beside you and for the person that is far from him and for the atheist and for the person that's lost in hurts, habits, and hang-ups and the person that is broken and the one that would not be accepted into most arenas in society. I want you to know that the one that we worship here today has no problem pausing what others may think are more important business to stoop down. He stoops down. You see, all of us, whether we're believers here or not, we are, we're like this woman. We all have struggles. We all have failures. We all have temptations and we don't need to share our secret sins today. I'm not putting anyone on blast in the dust. But you know what it is that you wrestle with, and you know what it is that you deal with. The problem is, though, in our society, some sins are more acceptable than others. Some sins are more excusable than others, and that's why we justify giving ourselves a pass, and we want to brutalize somebody else because we'll use... Excuses like, well, at least I wasn't caught in adultery. I do this, but it's not that bad. Or I know that they do that, and they're like that, but at least what I do is not that bad. Hey, and I've been guilty of that myself, and I think all of us do. It's a part of our sinful condition to try to rationalize and justify how we are not as bad as the other, but we all have issues. And for some of us, it's lust, and others of us, it's jealousy, and for others of us, it's anger, and for others of us, it's self-righteousness, and for others of us, it's greed, and for others of us, it's idolatry, and for others of us, the list, it goes on and on and on and on. We're all messed up here today. We're all needing a daily application of the grace and the mercy of God in our lives, but I wanted to just tell someone here today that we serve a God that is going to stoop down. I want you to know today that we serve a Savior that is going to come down to our level to reach us. He's going to come down to our level to rescue us. He's going to come down to our level to restore us. And maybe there's been times where you made a mistake and you felt so much shame 
and you thought, I can't go to him. He's busy blessing other more qualified people. He, he's, he's concerned with world affairs. There's other things in other parts of the universe that he must deal with. Our Jesus, the real Jesus, he'll pause whatever work he's got going, no matter how noble it may appear, and he will stoop down, and he will get down to the level of where we are and how far we've fallen, and he will look us in the eye and he will remind us you are loved and you are cared for and I have a plan and I have a purpose for your life. He'll stoop down. Listen, he is not so exalted that he will not condescend to a lowly place for our benefit. And I want you to notice the difference between the posture of the two groups. The religious... They are in a posture of arrogance and self-righteousness because they stand above her as accusers. But then there's Jesus, who is God, the creator of all things. And there's Jesus in a posture of humility and love who stoops down. Gets down to her level. And aren't you thankful today? Aren't you thankful for a God who is willing to stoop down? Look, I've been a Christian the majority of my life. I made a fresh start, surrendered my life to Jesus when I was eight years old. That means I've been a Christian. I've been following him full of the Holy Spirit. Baptized in the Holy Spirit and power for like 30 years and more of my life. But even yet. I fail. Even yet, I mess up. I'm not always on my feet. I'm not always able to stand. And sometimes I come literally, I feel like I'm just crawling to God. Sometimes I can't hardly pick myself up, but He is willing to stoop down. He'll stoop down. That's the one that we worship here today. And I think that we have a choice forever and always as to what posture that we're going to adopt in our lives individually and our posture as a church corporately. Are we going to be like the religious and the judgmental and the critical who stand above people that are broken and hurting and and judge and accuse them? Are we going to be more like our heavenly father who in a posture of love and humility gets down and says, I'm with you. I love you. You're going to make it. I'm going to help you get back on your feet again. I want our church to be a place that is for all people, the broken those who have it together seemingly on the surface. I I want it to be a place where everyone knows that they're comfortable. It's okay to not be okay. If I messed up this week, it's okay. This is going to be a place of mercy. It's going to be a place of grace and a place of restoration. The second thing that we see about Jesus here that maybe you didn't know about him is that he touches the dirty places. He touches the dirty places. Jesus, he bends down and he gets his hands in the dirt. Have you ever ever known someone or maybe worked for someone 
that their whole attitude and their whole approach is they just don't want to get their hands dirty. I, I, I would just prefer to have somebody else do it. I, I just I, I don't want to get my hands dirty. And I think that it would be easy to think of God in this manner because after all, who is God? He is God. He is holy. He is righteous. He's the image of perfection. And for some of us, we view him as so austere, so disconnected, so far away. And we feel like our lack of holiness is an insult or is off-putting to him and that he would never want to be near us because he wouldn't want to get his hands dirty because we know ourselves we know that our lives aren't always the the image of perfection or or righteousness or cleanliness but he gets his hands dirty like he has a track record in another in another time and place there was there was another man, a beggar, a blind man, another societal outcast, somebody that wasn't trusted, that was looked from a side eye. He was blind. He had no options, and he's crying out for help. And you know what Jesus does? In order to produce a miracle in his life, Jesus spits onto the dust. He spits onto the ground, and once again, he gets his hands dirty. He touches the dirty places. And, and he forms a, a, a mud pack. It was like the original spa. It was like he was getting a mud pack ready for the guy's face and eyes and puts it over his eyes. He was willing to get his hands dirty just so a guy could see again. Our God's willing to get his hands dirty. I don't know what you have done this week, where you've been, what your life looks like, but don't let a false belief about him Keep you away from him. He's willing to get his hands dirty. He'll get into your messy and dirty marriage and, and he'll help clean it up and fix it up. He'll get his hands into the dirtiness of your hurts, habits, and hang-ups and he'll clean it up. He'll get his hands into the mix of, of different conflicts and problems and issues that we've got with other people and he'll help to clean it up because he touches the dirty places. He's willing to touch the dirty places. And I think as his followers, as his sons and daughters, we've got to be willing to do the same. We can't be saying, well, this group of people's okay and these people are not okay and we'll be willing to reach this group but not that group and they're, they're too sinful and they're too this and they're too that. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, I was ministering in Baton Rouge, Louisiana and God is moving at this church in such an amazing way and they are kind of experiencing right now a revival in a, a specific demographic of the community. God had grown their church. They've, they've been around like 14 or 15 years. My friend had planted the church with nothing at the beginning and God over the course of 14, 15 years has raised up such a great church. And, but over the last couple of years, they had started to experiencing a, a, a revival in a group of people that were in recovery. Somehow their church had gotten a ministry started helping people 
that were dealing with drug and alcohol addictions, other type of addictions and struggle. And there was this great revival happening amongst this, this group of people in recovery. And they're coming to the church and they're getting saved and their lives are being transformed. And it, it, it's just beautiful. And he was telling me all about it while I was there, so excited. And I got to meet some of the different ones and see how God was moving in their life. And while I was there, a couple called him up that had attended his church for years. And they said, we wanted to let you know that Easter Sunday is going to be our last Sunday. And he said, well, why is that? And he said, the man on the other end said, well, it's just, it's just we're not real fond of all the, the different kinds of people that are there now. And he said, what are you talking about? And he said, yeah, just the, like the, the, the nature, the complexion of the church has changed. It just doesn't feel like our church anymore. There's just too many people with, with too many like severe problems. And my friend said, I, I don't know what to tell you. That's, that's why we exist. That's what we're here for. Thank you for what you've invested here all this time. We're going to keep doing what God has called us to do. Because he understood, the church understands that God touches the dirty places. And then the next thing I just want to highlight as I hurry to close here today, that he says to her, he says, woman, where is everyone? Everyone's left you. Where are your accusers? They're gone now, right? And then Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. And this is huge because if there was anyone present that had a right to throw a rock, if there was anyone that had a right to cast the stone, it was Jesus. He was the embodiment of perfection. He was without sin. And he could have condemned her and he could have thrown a stone. And he says to her instead, I don't condemn you either. Which means that another thing you may not know about Jesus is that he gives second chances. He'll find you at your lowest point, at your weakest place, and he gives you a second chance. He's not looking to destroy you. He's not looking to harm you. He's got your best interest in mind. He wants to do what is best for you. He wants to work and to operate in your life. He gives second chances. And then the last thing that I want to point out before we go here today is that then after all of that, because we could be left thinking, well, but what about... What about what she did? Like, is there anything regarding that? Like, is grace so amazing that it excuses sin? Is grace so fabulous that it gives us a license to do whatever we want to do? But Jesus says to her, go now. And leave your life of sin. The last thing that we may not know about Jesus is that he inspires you to change. That he inspires you to change. Here's the thing. 
people have always believed that in order to be a person of faith, to be a Christian, to be a part of a church, that you've got to reach some kind of level of perfection, some level of goodness, some level of righteousness before you ever walk through the doors. They, they believe that you've got to get your stuff together before you choose Jesus. You've got to work some of it out. You can't come too dirty. You can't come too badly broken. I've got to work on some stuff, and then I'm, I'm going to get my life together, and then I'm going to get in church. But what Jesus said was, that is ridiculous. If you're sick, you don't wait until you are whole before you go to the doctor, before you go to the hospital. You have someone drive you or you get in an ambulance and you have them take you immediately and you let the doctors and the medical clinic, you let them worry about making you better. You just get there. And that's what Jesus said regarding himself and his church. He said, I I have not come for people that have it together. I've not come for self-righteous people, religious people, critical people. He said, no, I've come for the sinner. I've come for those that are broken. I've come for those that have issues. I've, got, I've come for people honestly like me and probably the majority of you. I've come for people that need me. And here's the thing. He accepts us just the way that we are. But we have to keep this in mind. There is a, a major difference between acceptance and approval. Acceptance doesn't mean approval. And that's why Jesus says to her, after everybody's gone, he says something to her that's going to inspire change in her life. So she doesn't fall into the same pattern and end up back in the same place. He gives her a future with hope when he inspires her to change. And he says, go now and leave this life of sin. And that's the great thing about Jesus here today is he accepts me and you as I am without, without approving of what I do or what you do so that he can transform me into what he desires me to be. But the last thing that I want to point out is I want you to notice how he does it. I want you to notice how he does it. He waits. When he addresses her sin, he waits until everyone is gone. And it is in a place of privacy security and relationship that he speaks the hard truth that she needs in order for her to go forward differently. Notice when the crowd is all there, he gives grace publicly, but he reserves hard truths for the private moments in secure relationship. And it is for this reason I often wonder, why do we as Christians, why do we want to blast people with hard truths on social media? Why do we want to tout the Word of God, what we believe, what is right, what is wrong, what is black, what is white? Why do we want to do that 
in a very public forum where we've got believers, non-believers, Christians, non-Christians, such, such a, such a, just like John 8, such a swirling, diverse, bloodthirsty, tense, controversial crowd. You and I, the majority of us, we know what the Word teaches. We know what God's will is. We know how He feels and thinks about things. But is that the place? Is a public place blasting somebody for what they're doing or how they're thinking? Is that the place to initiate what's going to change their life? What if instead we adopted the methodology of the real Jesus and we thought, I'm going to def- I'm, we're, going to, we're going to befriend that person. We're going to befriend them. We're going to love them. We're going to get to know them. We're going to find out about their lives and about their families. And then at some point in time, in a secure place, in a safe place, in a relational place, we'll be able to speak into their heart and into their life after they have seen that Jesus stoops down and after they see that he's willing to touch dirty places and after they see that he gives second chances, then we can say to them, this is what God intends for your life but the real Jesus the real Jesus he's never he's never going to put you on blast in front of everybody he loves you and he cares about you and he is at work even now in your heart and in your life and so today this first week of our new series I, I just wanted to give you some more good news We focused on some good news last Sunday, but I wanted to give you some more good news here today that he is grace, he is truth, he is second chances, he is wonderful, he is loving, and he is here right now. If you're willing to accept it and receive it, he's here right now to give you grace and mercy as well as inspire you to change. Will you stand with me here today? In just a moment, we're going we're gonna to go into prayer, and then we're going to, we're gonna go into a last moment of worship. And I, I just want to give us another opportunity today to just respond to him, to respond to the real Jesus, to just know who he is. I, I don't know what your week has looked like, if it's been stressful, if you've just been pressed down, if you just feel almost like you've crawled in here today, and it could be because of mistakes you've made, it could be just because the pressures of life around you are just affecting you in a negative way, I don't know what it is, but none of that matters, Jesus is here, and he's wanting to meet us here, as you bow your head and close your eyes. I'm going to pray with you. I want you to know I'm not going to embarrass anyone today. We're not going to ask you to step out in the aisles or anything like that. But I am inviting some men and women, some prayer partners to come down to the front. And what we're going to do is we're going to sing. And if you would like prayer today, maybe something about this has touched your heart and inspired you and And you're like, Jesus, thank you for your love. Jesus, thank you that you care about me that much. And you just want somebody to pray with you today. We're we're here. But every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to lead you today in prayer. And maybe there's someone here right now, no one's looking around, but your heart is saying, I want to know and I want to meet the real Jesus. 
And if that's you, would you just raise your hand right where you are? You just raise your hand. Thank you. Thank you. I see those hands. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I want to meet. I want to know the real Jesus. Well, the good news is right now you're getting ready to because we're going to pray. We're going to invite him into your heart and life, and that's where he's going to be, and you're going to begin something right now that's going to literally change your life as you know it. So come on, church. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for your word and for your presence. I thank you for your grace and for your mercy. And I thank you for what you are doing in this place. God, we in this moment surrender to you. We want to meet you, the real you, not what we've been told about you. We reject some of the false notions and the false ideologies that we have about who you are. Open our hearts and our eyes today to see who you actually are. And we want to meet you. We want to embrace you. And we want you to come live in us. Forgive us of our sins. Make us a new person. Transform our lives. You will be the Lord and the leader of our life. And that's why we're going to follow you the rest of our days. And Lord Jesus, I pray for this church as a corporate body. That we would remember that if we're going to be identified with you. We've got to be people of humility, love, and grace. We've got to be a church that welcomes those who are far from you, embrace them, and bring them into family, bring them into relationship. And Father, I just pray that you would remind us again why we're here and what we're about. We thank you and we give you praise in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Let's sing, church. And it is today the Holy Spirit that makes the difference. And I pray today that you were touched by his Holy Spirit and that you threw open your heart and life to his Holy Spirit because what began in you today will continue and you will see things that you never could have imagined in your life begin to play out because that is how good our God is. Aren't you thankful today for the real Jesus? Can we just thank him? What a loving Savior. What an awesome God. It's now time for our final act of worship, and this is when we give our money and our financial resources towards returning the tithe to God and giving offerings that fuel the vision and the mission of this house. And I just want to thank you for doing that. That is why we're able to see God move in people's lives and see families be rebuilt and see things happen in the global community. It's because of faithfulness and generosity. And thank you. And there's ways that you can give that are coming up on the screen behind me. And I want to remind you here today that if you're wanting to take a next step in your faith, take a next step into learning more about our church or getting more involved, we're hosting launch step number two immediately at the end of our gathering. As you exit, you'll make a right and it will be down a short hallway. There'll be some refreshments there. Child care is provided. Also, if you're new, you're a VIP today or you surrendered to Jesus, made a fresh start, there's a card there at your seat that says next steps. Just take a moment and fill that out. Then take it to the tent in the lobby because we have a gift that we want to give you. And then we're going to be praying for you, keeping you posted on different things happening in the life of our church. If you were here last week and you turned in a card but maybe didn't get your gift, stop back by the tent. We want to make sure you get your gift. We're thrilled that you're here. We're thrilled about what God is doing. We're continuing our series next Sunday 
Come, bring somebody with you. We love you. God bless. Have an amazing week. Go make your life matter.